though it was hardly the first time they had all been lined up inside the office. The four scallywags had rarely taken the time to survey the surroundings. It was a small and narrow room, with a high ceiling dimly lighted with a series of letterbox-shaped windows. The desk and chair sat at one end of the room, to the side of which the four scallywags were stood, while directly opposite an entire wall was lined with bookshelves, though only a couple of dozen volumes rested upon them, old, tattered, and dusty. All four scallywags must have been in the same trance, for they all jumped in unison when Abel finally entered and shut the door. He regarded them all silently with an eyebrow raised. The very sound of his ragged, phlegmatic breaths was unsettling. Before he could take his seat, the door opened again and Miss Rebecca came in. "'What is it now?' her brother asked her, wheeling around. "'I have come to oversee the punishment,' she sniped in reply. Abel growled with malcontent. "'Very well.' he muttered. Miss Rebecca looked daggers at him over her spectacles before closing the door again. She remained standing beside it, observing. Now then, Abel began, addressing the four scallywags, you have been here before me scores of times too many. Why you bother leaving this office defies all belief. Seems to me it'll only be a matter of time before you return. The four scallywags' heads were pointed towards the floor. Look me in the eye when I'm speaking to you, he shouted. The four scallywags' heads bolted upright, and their gaze collectively met with Abel's. Miss Rebecca's lip curled. Much as she despised her brother, even she would admit he knew how to intimidate, and she relished it almost as much as he did. "'You come in here every time frightened after having done whatever you've done,' Abel went on. "'You leave here after every beating with remorse and contrition, but it appears to make little difference at all.' For you do it all over again and return in exactly the same way. You either learn your lesson or you do not learn it. They do not learn it, Miss Rebecca reiterated through her sharp teeth, with a hawk-like expression that could pierce a precious stone. Rebecca Sturkwas, will hold your tongue, Abel commanded her. Let there be an end to this, Miss Rebecca ignored her brother's instruction. I expel them today. Will you be silent, was his harsh rebuke, making the children before him jump once more. His sister pointed her chin at him, taking a staggered intake of breath in well-disguised fear. "'You will do no such thing,' Abel murmured in continuation. He turned back to the four scallywags and smiled nastily at them. "'How else are they to be taught?' Rebecca Stirkwistle. "'That their mistakes are merely mistakes of their youth.' He swiped his cane down on the table, causing a loud and intense snapping sound upon contact. "'It is nothing that a little corporal punishment cannot teach them.' We just need to ensure the lesson sticks this time. This, this, this is the Crime Board. The Crime Board Podcast. You're listening. You're listening to the Crime Board Podcast. This is the Crime Board Podcast with Sam West. Welcome to the Crime Board Podcast. If you've been with us from the beginning, I hope you've enjoyed the past three episodes. If you're just tuning in, welcome. I'm Sam West, and tonight I'll be sitting down with author and fellow podcaster Dale Hurst. Dale, a very good evening to you. How are you doing? Good evening to you too, Sam. I'm very well, thank you. Um, it's a pleasure to be here. A quick question for you is, if you had the opportunity to sit down and share a meal with any 
one of your book characters, who would you choose and why? Right, okay. Well, uh, this this might be a bit divisive uh, for anyone listening who's actually already read the books, um, but I would like to sit down with uh, my chief anti-hero, uh, Abel Sturkwistle, my chief anti-hero for, for Sin and Secrecy, anyway. Um, I kind of wrote him as this very fearsome character, but this character who, when you're on his good side, could actually be good company, even friendly. He He's a popular and influential member of society, after all. You, you don't get that way by being an asshole to everyone, even in the Regency of Victorian times. There's a level of grace that you need to observe, at least. And uh, it's just getting on his good side that's the trick. And as the book progresses, you'll see that several characters run afoul of him. Um, but I would personally want to sit down for a meal with him because he's been such an interesting and enjoyable character to write. Um, and much as you know, I created him, I would still like to sort of enjoy interviewing him about why he acts the way he acts, why he, why, why his career turned the way it did, that sort of thing. And I think there's a lot of me in Abel as well, even if subconsciously or unconsciously, the sense of humour is there. Um, he he likes he, yeah very dark and sort of well twisted um, sort of wind up merchanty sense of humour. He likes food a lot as well, which is a definite Dale Hurstism. Um, he's comfortable talking to people of all classes as well. I think I'd be cautious of his temper, but I like to think we'd get on. I like to think that we'd uh, that we'd have a good mandate uh, between us. <laughs> yeah, well. Um... Yeah, you said, luckily, you, you mentioned sense of humour, because I was about to say, if you're, uh, you know, a bit like him, I'd, I'd probably be a bit scared. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I, I yeah, he's, he, he, the the better qualities, the redeeming features, perhaps. Yeah, there um, we go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's a bit intimidating. And obviously, yeah, we will get into him um, in a bit, because he has been one of the characters that has really stood out to me. Um but yeah, as you mentioned, he loves food, so I imagine uh, you would have to to cook something pretty good. Um, yes. Um, well, I mean, it's um, I, I again, like I said, I threw a bit of me in there. One of his favourite dishes is is uh, well, he likes he likes his pies, and I like my pies. I and I though I say it myself, I I'm not uh, I'm kind of a dab hand with with pastry and pies and stuff like that so uh, I th I like to think I've never had any complaints yet uh, about a steak pie that I've ever made so uh, I'd like to get I'd give it a good go anyway well that's all you need isn't it <laughs> <laughs> uh, would you invite would you invite his wife round as well or would it just be the two of you oh well I feel I feel like the wife should be there but I still don't think she'd feel very comfortable I uh, much as I try um I've fear that I'd fall out of favour with him if I tried to be nice to her. It sets a bad precedent, you know, so I think it would probably be just the two of us, yeah. Yeah, that, that makes sense, yeah. Otherwise, uh, yeah. <laughs> All right, brilliant. So you've been writing since the age of five, but really started to explore your genre at school. Yeah, and I say writing loosely, obviously. Um, <laughs> but really, really started to explore your genre at school, you said, uh, in your GCSE years. What was it about the genre that initially uh, hooked you? <laughs> like you say, the GCSE years. And I had written for a school project a, a short story called Suffer the Children, which was a, 
a culmination of three things that had been, sorry, it was inspired by a culmination of three things that had been on TV around the same time. Um, there was there was the latest episode of, it was either Silent Witness or a procedural of that ilk, uh, which had involved some child murders. Then the BBC's adaptation of Cranford had been on with Judy Dench, and then also uh, Sleepy Hollow, um, Tim Burton's Sleepy Hollow with Johnny Depp and Christina Ricci, and that the setting for that story was called Barrelford, and so sticking with that sort of classic sleepy, close knit community, I decided to write. That. Funny you should mention Sleepy Hollow because that's kind of as I've been telling you for the past what two weeks now um, since I've been diving into to your books that uh, yeah you you really do there's something very Tim Burton about your writing or perhaps it's the world building or the atmosphere which really sticks with me um, yeah I love it well I mean I'm glad that you picked up on that because that's probably the least conscious sort of influence that that was there like i said it it was the it was the groundwork um certainly uh with that original short story um but then it was much more i was trying to take much more of the of the charles dickens and the jane austen oh yes yes uh, you know those influences which are which are far more uh, at the forefront of my mind um, when exploring this genre, because I was, you know, writers of the period, it would be the they would be the best sort of people to draw from. Um, but it was very interesting that when you when you said that to me um, at the time, uh, Tim Burton, I I thought, oh wow, so it 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 is still there, even if I didn't necessarily mm. mean for it to be there. Because um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I've just sort of quite kind of class these books as sort of Dickensian, what I call Dickensian style yeah. mysteries. You know, yeah, I, I rarely see that. Yeah, I, I, so yeah, the fact that there's a Tim, but oh, well, maybe he can do a film adaptation. Then I'll uh, <laughs> yes bear that in mind. Although I don't don't picture Johnny Depp playing Abel Stirk Whistle, or do I? That's a that's a that's an interesting casting actually because he's about the right age uh for abel now because he's because right, he's in yeah. his late 50s well he's 60 this yeah. year is johnny depp so yeah he's about the he's about the right age it would work <laughs> so make sure tim tim burton listening he should he should take note absolutely <laughs> <laughs> you'll get a contract in a couple of days <laughs> That would uh, that would sort of, certainly sort a few things out. <laughs> yeah, I think I don't know that that's. I mean, it's the sort of image that I got in my head while I was reading, and obviously, mm. I have a, a, a film industry a production background. So for me, I could actually picture what the sets would look like and what the town looks like, and ugh, it was really good. Um, it's funny you should mention Dickensian because I initially thought I'm not sure if you know the artist Jamie Hewlett. Um, but he had a whole Dickensian phase as well, and it just fits so perfectly. <laughs> oh, really? Oh, okay. Well, brilliant. Yeah, I'll, I'll send you a picture afterwards. <laughs> mm, no, please do. Yeah, that sounds interesting. Yeah, so yeah, so you started that um, at school. Uh, what inspired the series? Now, I know you mentioned your influences, but what actually inspired the characters and the world and you know uh, the initial sort of starting point? Well, like I said, I mean, it, I grew up loving quite mature literature, even when I was sort of nine, ten, 
really enjoyed Dickens, Victor Hugo, uh, Jane Austen, and so on. And after dabbling a bit with fantasy writing, because as an aspiring author, I had to start by trying to be the next Tolkien, I decided, actually, no, that this isn't what I'm good at. I understand the 18th and 19th centuries. I love how these people talked and wrote and dressed and ate and so on. And like I said, I've written this short story for school called Suffer the Children, which was set in this town called Berylford, this very sort of classic sleepy, close-knit community, like I said earlier. And I thought, now that's something that I would like to sort of play around with. I didn't have a specifically a... I had little ideas, little plot leads, really. And I think, you know, I think in the first draft, they weren't necessarily one sort of cohesive plot. They were they were several stories all happening at the same time. Um, but I thought, I, how can I get these to tie together? I had a list of 40 original characters, all of whom had or were related to a secret or a scandal going on in this one community and sort of taking and corrupting and manipulating and exaggerating tropes and traits and plot devices that your Dickens and Austin and Elizabeth Gaskell writers from that period used. And I sort of kept going with those, kept exploring those various sort of story strands of what what the Sturt Whistles were up to, what the Four Scalloways were up to, what Lady Verrington and her household were up to, how they all tethered together because initially they were, you know, very only very loosely connected. But you sort of kept get going and whittling down and polishing until you have the tales that you now know as the Barrelford Scandals. Um, so, yeah, it was just really inspired by a love of all things of that period, of all characters of that period, the language, the, yeah, like I say, the well, the atmosphere as well, because it's a very different, you know, still a very different way of life compared to what we now have in in the 21st century you know mm, it's yeah it's a completely different yeah sort of just you know, yeah atmosphere like i say um but yeah so it was just a love of all of that really that sort of you know right i'm going to pour all of that into this story i'm just going to sort of run with it and see how far i can take this and see what comes out the other side really mm. yeah yeah, I, I think that's how we all start is, you know, we're inspired by something and then that kind of grows in boats. Um, mm. But the the dark twist, the sort of darker aspects, did that sort of come naturally or did you build that over time? I think I did build it over time. Um, I didn't want it to be sentimental or, you know, too fluffy or airy-fairy, even in the earlier drafts when the writing was far less mature. But I think it probably wasn't so much the crime novel that you now have where you're in front of you you know I think Abel was probably a lot less violent uh, and intimidating and not even so much fearsome yes he was you know he used to scare children but that's because he works in a school it was in in the 19th century it was probably just went with the territory there was no you know now he's sort of this uh, power 
he's not even power hungry because as far as he's concerned, he already has the power. He doesn't need to be hungry for it because he has it. Um, this very sort of self-assured, assertive, authoritative, almost autocratic, well, man. Yeah, I, I think that just, I just thought, well, what we don't have is a real, and I don't even like to call him a villain because he, well, I do call him a villain, but uh, in the in the sense that he is a, a contemptible person. Um, he's not actually, as far as I'm concerned, necessarily the antagonist of the of the series, because there are people who do evil by him as well. He's much more an anti-hero, I think. But yeah, I think the the sort of the darkness that goes with it, yeah, that sort of came. He's not like you know, didn't really think on any sort of serial killers or anything, or you know, other famous criminals. When informing his character, they just sort of what could be really like what could be a really nasty thing that he could do. Is it believable for him to do it? What would be the consequence of that? Uh, well, everybody's scared of him, so he can do it. He will do it anyway. And if they don't like it, well, that's the next plot point. He will he will make sure that they come to regret it. Yeah, it was just sort of, again sort of seeing how far I could uh, I could take. Yeah, it. that makes complete sense. Um, yeah, I'm I glad definitely it did to you because it didn't to me. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, <laughs> I suppose that's uh, the benefit of actually uh, having readers, you know, actually putting the book out there <laughs> because half the time, as, mm. as the authors, we don't know what's going on really, but the readers seem to understand. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, it's been so long now since I've actually sort of uh, picked it up and, and had a look and obviously being with these characters for so long, you know, I thought I knew them so well. And then when yeah. when it comes down to people actually asking me things like, you know, oh, you know, who who inspired, you know, who who did you think of when you were creating X, Y, Z? And I just said, you know what, I'm not entirely sure. Even things like, I mean, it's not even just down to the characters. It's people think uh, asking me things like, what are the book's themes? Bloody hell, I don't know. Um, I usually say loyalty. Loyalty is a big one. Um, yeah. But yeah, that's probably the only one that I sort of consciously put in there. Um, but yeah, otherwise in terms of, yeah, sort of you know, duty, family is, is a big one, I suppose. Um, but again, they're not really things that I went in with a sort of a conscious, right. We have to address theme A, theme B, theme C. They, they grew just in the writing process. Yeah, that's that's such a school thing, though, isn't it? Like actually analysing it, which I suppose mm. is helpful. But I feel, well, personally, I just feel sometimes it takes away from the magic of actually writing it because you know. Oh yeah, absolutely. Oh, I can't bear. <laughs> that sounds <laughs> awful, really. I I can't bear talking to readers. Um, <laughs> who wanna, who I can't bear talking to readers when they really want to get down to the the nitty gritty, or the, you know, they've yeah gone so far as to completely overanalyze what you wrote yeah and yeah 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 i I'm get that yeah i'm sure there was a meme or something where you know the what would the author say if uh you know the english teacher oh yes um, the blue door something like that yeah it just <laughs> the like, door is painted blue <laughs> exactly yeah. you know the, why, yeah. why why did we need to know i i, I just liked the cut i just you know it is that way because because i said so uh what are you what are you trying to represent here 
nothing. Oh gosh, yeah. I I mean, I loved English at school, but I also hated it. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. I just so I I love reading for a different reason. I think I just I like the la- I like language. Um, I do like I do like you know looking into characters and stuff. But I'm I'm not about the 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 overanalyzing. It's uh, like you say, it takes the magic away. It takes the fun away because. Especially if you're, if as a writer you go in with that consciously, then of thinking, oh right, okay, well, what are the readers going to think of this thing? You end yeah. up sort of. I mean, to be fair, I've been guilty of that while writing, especially with the first couple drafts. I was overly stressed about that, and now I just don't care. I'm like, I'm enjoying what I'm doing. So. <laughs> yeah, exactly, and again, especially in the early stages, you can't you can't get bogged down with that. That's, you know, I mean, I know, Sam, that you've just sent out um, some drafts to beta readers. That's what those yeah. guys are there for. That was they're, stressful. They're to sort of <laughs> they're, yeah, I'm sure it was. Yeah, I mean, I, I personally don't try to avoid them if I can. Um, but, yeah, the, it, you know, that's what they're there for. They're there to p- poke holes in things or alert you to potential weaknesses. But it's better going in ig- ignorantly blissful. Yeah. blissfully ignorant yeah which whichever one of those is correct and uh, and then you can sort of be like oh okay i see what you, you've pointed out xyz i see where you're coming from here hmm. yeah yeah i think it's just for that initial feedback it's just i mean for me it's always been okay i don't don't really need to know if it's brilliant or not i just want to know if it makes sense um yes because i feel most of the time you know when we get stuck in and we're, we're really busy writing we almost we don't really see everything for what it is until we kind of step back or have someone else look at it, if that makes sense. Oh, yeah, no, absolutely. Especially when you've been dealing with it for and working on it at, at a constant. You know, your your eyes stop seeing what's actually there. They start seeing what they think is there. I know that when I was doing the final read-throughs for Sin and Secrecy, there was a I – I couldn't tell you what the line was or anything, but there was a there was a typo – in a sentence and it was a sentence that I had not edited for you know for years and years and years it had been there because I really liked the line so I had kept it there all this time and never once had I noticed that typo until on one of those final read-throughs and it's just amazing that you know you can be that blind to something over so many years (laughs) yeah it kind of is your baby isn't it so you you kind of you're kind of blind to it until you cannot be blind to it anymore (laughs) that's true that's very true it's a labor of love certainly but uh, it's always worth it when people when you put the work out there afterwards and people actually come back to you and say we're really loving this so yeah that makes it that makes it worth all the i won't even go so far as to call it stress necessarily but it's the it's the long nights and well you know in some cases the long days as well you can be sat there reading through or having your work read to you in the end because I just couldn't bear to look at it with my own eyes for much longer so I actually had Microsoft Word read it back to me via the narrator function which in turn is that that is a very valuable way to weedle out typos that your eyes refuse to see because the screen reader will read it incorrectly although i will say that it does um it does have its faults um the word sake 
being uh, one of them, like for, for goodness sake. Um, the uh, but the screen reader on Microsoft Word um, reads sake as sake, uh, as in the oh goodness, as in the Japanese <laughs> rice wine. So uh, it's not for so it's not for God's sake. It's for God's sake. And I, I must admit, when when it first when it first did that, I thought no come on you've got to be kidding me i i can't have misspelled sake as sake and yeah went went back in there and read it, it of course it's spelled the same way but i thought that no, for goodness sake you know sake is going to be more likely to be sake than sake <laughs> isn't it <laughs> So coming back to uh, your two lovely, um, yet terrifying, well, for me at the moment, terrifying characters, um, you've got Abel and Miss Rebecca. Where did, did their story begin for you? And I know you, you said you don't really think about, you know, if they were inspired by anyone, but um, where did they begin? Why did you decide specifically to put them in? Well, they are perhaps two of the only characters whose images did not really change at all in my mind when I wrote them all the way through to the end of, through to publishing, you know, um, Abel and Rebecca Stirk was thought they their names didn't even change from the moment they were written down on that list of original forty characters. They've always been Abel and Rebecca Stirk was thought. So they were the they were two of the central characters right from the off. I I knew I knew what was going to happen to Rebecca very early on. The, that was sort of like the first plot point. I thought no. You know, like I said, I started writing this at school, and I thought, I think it must have been a really, really bad day. And I thought to myself, now some some kids will come home and they will just seethe about that bad day, and then there may be some child somewhere or some kids somewhere who might actually plot to kill their teacher. And it get so I thought, well, you know, it's as good a premise as any for the first for the opening strand of a Victorian crime novel, so or, or a Victorian mystery novel or whatever, and um, so yeah, I thought well, Rebecca Stokewell is going to die. There are these four kids who are the class clowns who get punished rather severely by her brother, um, who was always going to be this. Uh, yeah, sort of tyrant. Um, yeah, but then they sort of come to realise that she, Rebecca's the problem, not necessarily him, that he might actually be okay if he didn't have her bearing down on him all the time. So let's uh, let's get rid of her. They go, they break into the house only to discover that someone else has beaten them to it. That's how that. That's how they started. They always started that way. Um, and it was always going to be a ca- the case as well that Rebecca was going to know a secret of Abel's and was going to take it to her grave. That was the 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 nature of the secret changed continually across the uh, across the writing process right up until the last draft when I actually decided that the reveal was too predictable, um, and so I decided to ch- to twist it again to something that I feel or felt anyway might be less predictable. So their antagonistic relationship that was always there as well, but I think even that got more severe and more dark over the writing process. Um, but yeah, so th- that's where they sort of 
that's where their story sort of started. And like I say, Rebecca's story comes to an end quite swiftly. Um, whereas Abel, again, wasn't necessarily to be there a, a constant present throughout. He was going to be, he was, you know, there would be some chapters where he didn't appear at all. Um, but he would always sort of just be there in the background. Whereas now, yeah, he's the main, sort of the main character. Um, he draws a lot, um, or, you know, towards the, the the later parts of the writing process, he draws a lot from sort of Dickensian villains that are not necessarily monstrous villains. They're sort of, he's he draws on, uh, Mr. Tulkinghorn from Bleak House uh, and Jer- Jeremiah Flintwood from uh, Little Dorrit in terms of his infirmity. Um, there there are others in there too. but uh, And like I said, while he's no means a heroic character, I always think of Rebecca as the antagonist because she does no good by anyone and she really goes out of her way to do evil by Abel. Eh? So there's this deliberate ambiguity over who's worse than whom in that scenario. Um, and I think as well, you see it in a lot of novels of the period, very close sibling relationships. The value of family is very clear in a lot of works by Jane Austen and company. But I really wanted to, this is before Game of Thrones was really very popular. So we didn't, I'd, I'd not really seen anything that sprang to mind anyway, where there was a pair of siblings who were constantly at one another's throats vying for the top spot in the household or just resenting one another for their very existence really as as i feel like uh, rebecca does to abel just yeah <laughs> just hates him for the for the mere fact that not that he's just not just because he's a lot older than her or the fact that he's a man but just because he's there whereas abel really just sort of hates her back more for his own amusement i think but yeah <laughs> um and and again that sort of relationship because it's it's not something that you see in a a lot of um a lot of literature but in real life as well i thought that well, that's sort of a, a lot of fun to sort of play around with as long as it's something that is in within human nature to do um then yeah, why can't it? Why can't it be so? And yeah, that was uh, that was that. Hmm. When you mentioned that they're not really villains in the traditional sense, however, there was and 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 to me that really stood out in the beginning as well. Um, when you're just sort of trying to figure out who these characters are and where they they sort of fit, um, not only among other characters but also in, in society, um, there was something quite unsettling about them but also very strongly uh there was a strong human aspect as well um you could see that unsettling you know sort of unsettling uh, personality and, and sort of things coming through but you could also see the human aspect um and i think to me uh, for me that's what really drew me in um because i was curious about them as humans first i wanted to know how they got to that point and what happened in their lives um you know, for them to to be in this mm. at this point with each other, but also with everyone else. Yeah. Um, no, I understand, and that's something that really I. That's one of the reasons why I sort of decided to write *Lust and Liberty*, the the prequel, because it was sort of a a question that I didn't really answer even for myself um, when I first started writing 
sin and secrecy um i just decided really that these are two characters that really don't like each other and just sort of roll with that um it doesn't really it, i think further down the line in this book it does sort of become clear or clearer anyway there's sort of indications really um but yeah it's it's more from the first book where um abel is taken ill um yeah he, he's taken ill very suddenly she is forced to nurse him um very briefly in power and then he makes this miraculous recovery um there's more to it of course as you'll find out um you know there's there's secrets and whatnot going uh underlining everything of course but um yeah then he makes this miraculous recovery and he is sort of almost back with a vengeance rebecca starts making um starts doing questionable things or certainly things that don't do their family name any good out of spite purely out of spite abel responds in kind and so begins this sort of what game of one-upmanship of i'm gonna i'm gonna defeat you no i'm the one in charge i'm defeating you and then abel also has sort of aspirations towards politics local government that sort of thing so we then get introduced to his sort of throwing his weight around in terms of power influence etc and yeah that sort of then feeds into sin and secrecy 20 years later when he's tried and failed at that but he so he's just got his little fiefdom at the uh, at the school at the school and uh were and yeah just trying to uh trying to just scare the bejesus out of everyone really just because uh he he knows he can uh, fear uh will keep them in line basically but i mean it was very much in a sense a man's world back then wasn't it um and yeah yeah and and obviously that that does come into play um especially we see with, with the four the four boys at first when they're uh, ripping up that dictionary which uh, which pained me <laughs> <laughs> to read <laughs> based on true events uh, i'm sorry to say <laughs> oh is inspired, it inspired by true inspired events by, oh uh, do, anyway. do do tell <laughs> um, well no, I, I went to an all boys school was in a uh, class that uh, had some well like like all classes um had some unruly unruly yeah. youths among them and thought they would start um i don't actually think they did actually rip it i, I think they were like pretending to or something but i thought now if they were actually ripping the pages out of the dictionary what would the teacher do and uh yeah so on so again that's sort of a um so yeah and that that that's always been the opening scene as well that opening scene has has been there from from day one really so it was a it was a good opener i'm i'm glad people appreciate it <laughs> or are pained by it as the case may be as long as it draws an emotional response i'm uh, i'm happy either way mm. yeah well i i think people who love to read and all write, <laughs> obviously would be like why <laughs> yeah um but yeah no that makes sense and um as i was saying when, when they started doing that and they figured they wouldn't really have much of a reaction from her i mean they would but it wouldn't be as much and then the second he walked in it, it completely the atmosphere changed um, and that came across very nicely on the page. I could just, I, I, I figured like, oh, they're in trouble now. <laughs> Jolly good. Yes, and indeed they were. <laughs> 
yeah, so the, fir- the first few chapters, um, as I said, really paint a picture of uh, an almost, and, and this is how I kind of experienced it, was an almost dystopian setting. Correct me if I'm wrong, but that's kind of what I had in my mind, in, in a sense. Um, or rather, it felt really grim and dark and a bit depressing. I think that period is quite gloomy anyway. Yeah. But, you know, unless it's all social scene and set up all yeah, the, yeah, the exactly. balls and the banquets, you know. It, I always think of, especially of Dickens anyway, as, you know, it's very uh, foggy, dirty, murky uh, s- streets. A lot of a lot of things go, a lot of the action going on at night um, or even, even if it is during the day, you still feel very sort of, there's, there's a clamminess to it. And I think, I think that was, um, I don't think it was a conscious decision to make it like that, but I, I, I think it would still come off a lot diff- more different um, the way the story is told if the sun was shining bright uh, all the time. And, you know, maybe maybe there's an irony that could have been built on there that we could have all this... Uh, you know, death and destruction going on while it's, uh, you know, right when there's a garden party going on a couple of towns over kind of thing. Um, but yeah, it didn't strike me. It struck me more to have the mood suit the, to have the mood suit the action. Uh, yeah, which and, it definitely does. Yeah. yeah. So, and I think as well, I, th- I think it just suits the, the genre better as well. Um but you know, I, I don't think it was really a conscious decision. I don't. I don't think I really sort of went in with with that atmosphere in mind. Really, I think it was just the way that I wrote it as as it came out. Really, it was very organic. I, it, to put it in other words, yeah, and yeah, it, building off that. So, so the first few chapters, so we began uh, by following the boys going about their school day when, of course, they get into trouble. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, yeah, we are then uh, treated to the scene with Mark and the, and the punishment that follows. Um, and after this, and this is where I kind of felt uh, the the sort of dark grim. I, I don't know, like for me, I felt it was kind of, uh, it kind of suited his character quite well. Um, Again, not to to overanalyze it, but I felt, you know, with with his parents being in prison, um, and then he's just had this day and this encounter with with Abel, um, and then is told about this murder, um, which to me almost foreshadows mm. what what is about to come. Was that intentional? It was always imperative for for Mark Waldrop and his friends as well to be sort of involved in the murder at. At their present age, which is like 12 or 13, I think. But that the whole point of that was sort of, it was to direct the idea that no one would suspect them being that young. It speaks to, as characters, it speaks to their complacency and to their naivete. They go in thinking, actively thinking, we'll get away with this because no one would think that kids would be capable of it. But it also makes them not only much easier to sympathise with um, from the more sympathetic characters, but also much easier to threaten from the more antagonistic characters. Threatening children or even early teenagers causes other characters to come to their defence. and or, or maybe the children keep it between themselves and it festers. And yeah, so the, it was very... 
it was deliberate in that sense that uh, they that they needed to be at that age. It would have come off. It, it was also very important that they not be any younger because they, they they would have to grow to understand the weight of the secret that they're carrying, the responsibility, and so on, and over the course of the novel. And it would have just come off. It, it wouldn't have been particularly surprising if they'd been older either. You know, if if they'd been older, they'd been sort of 16, 17. Well, in that day and age, they would have been out working anyway. They wouldn't have been in school, so it wouldn't have worked um, because no one did in those days. They would, So, yeah, they none of them would have been in that position. Um, and because I didn't want sort of huge tie jumps all over time jumps rather all over the book. I thought that age was about right for them naturally and believably to mature or at least develop. Yeah. Like you said, I do think that is an important age, um, you know, to, to sort of begin exploring outside of your comfort zone, but also thinking that you may get away with things um, that you would obviously either not get away with beforehand or, or after later in life. And I also think what's so brilliant, what you've managed to do so brilliantly as well, um, just thinking about the fact that obviously in those times you would you wouldn't expect that. I'm not saying that you'd expect it now, obviously. It's it would still be a shock now in, in our present day. But I think back then it would have been even more of a a shock. Um, you know, why why would a, a child even think about doing something like this, if that makes sense. Yeah, I, th I think it was, um, you know, th there needed to be a balance between innocence and intelligence um, for these characters, because if they were too innocent, then they would never have thought to do it. And if they had too much intelligence, then they would have overanalyzed it and they would have done it very well. And that wouldn't have been believable either. So, yeah, I, I just, I I figured that that would be around a about the right age where they could be taken seriously by other characters as well, but not so seriously that, uh, oh, well, they were just, they were just seen coming out of the, uh, of the deceased's house. So it must've been them. Um, you know, it, it was a, that was one of the more conscious decisions really that I think I made uh, in developing these characters that they could, they had to be, right in that there wasn't such of a, a broad sort of radius really to explore age wise they needed to be sort of bang on that 12 or 13 mark really the early chapter the discussion that the four of them have um has always sort of been in there in the sense that yeah we're we're we're, we're not significant enough because we're so young for anyone to think of us capable of doing it well anything significant like commit a murder um so we're we're as good as safe and they and also you know you, you've got to think about how incompetent and or corrupt the the policing um was back then you know that there was no they there was obviously there was no dna testing or, or you know even fingerprinting really and there wasn't in especially in sort of rural towns such as the such as Barrelford there wasn't really a police force you'd have maybe you'd have a constable as as Barrelford does um but they're not even necessarily paid by the the local government they they might just be a 
you know, a farmer with some extra time on his hands who, who, who volunteers to go and apprehend wrongdoers. There's no investigative quality to it. It's all, you know, if, if that's, if they want something like that, then they have to send someone down from London or further up north, you know, to send them down there to investigate, you know, so it, it it's, uh, so the, the 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 investigative quality the the way that crimes were handled and pursued uh was different so that that factors into their decision as well i mean you know the, the lord knows kids get uh, get arrested enough around here especially in in the uk anyway uh and and the us somewhere well all, everywhere of course um enough now but they certainly certainly wouldn't have been uh, back then, if the, if a kid had been arrested in in those days, what they they probably would have just been whipped or you know they, they're not going to get fined. They probably wouldn't get hanged necessarily unless they definitely proved them guilty of murder, of course. But again, where would be where would be the evidence for that other than that they were in the wrong place at the wrong time? Yeah, it's. Uh, it's it's always been a very fun thing to explore. It's actually it's certainly a lot more fun to explore crime from a historical level, I think, um, because it's it's too easy really now, I think, because everything is so advanced. Obviously, there are still unsolvable you know crimes that have been are, are as yet unsolved and stuff like that. Even with the advances we've made in terms of DNA and whatever else forensics um but yeah i think it's so much harder to create a challenging case in a present day in 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 a in a story set in the present day than and certainly a lot less a lot less challenging as a writer um you know exploring it from a historical point of view and you get all of those luxuries taken away from you of the forensics and the dna testing and what have you you're sort of just left to write how do we get to the bottom of this without any of these really useful <laughs> implements and software and everything to help us um you know we've just got to go about it with our mind and yeah, uh, and I think that's I think that's a really interesting uh, and challenging thing to sort of approach as an author. Mm, yeah, it, it definitely is. I've never really thought about writing historical crime. I think because it, it feels very intimidating. <laughs> I, w- I wouldn't really know where to begin with research. Um, which was my my final question was what what sort of research um, did you have to do for these? Obviously, uh, you know, seeing as they're not present day well so that's a question really because uh, again being so such a long time ago i think it, it, seems, it sounds so so hypocritical really to say it now because i am such a staunch advocate for for research and the amount of research i've done for my current work in progress has pretty much oversaturated the the the, the, the first draft really um i did i didn't really do a great deal of sort of historical research i understood a lot about the the period anyway um i had i watched documentaries and uh, i didn't really do much in the way of reading really beyond the odd article on the internet in terms of how how the society was was split 
Um, I had to read up a little bit about the Battle of Waterloo in terms of when it was, um, sort of the political landscape. But this is the thing about historical fiction. I I think it, it, it does a lot better when people stick to generalities when when things are just it's when it serves as a backdrop basically like we have the battle of waterloo in sin and secrecy but you don't actually visit it 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 comes and it goes it's happened and then you have the the consequences after but we don't go to belgium we don't you know we we meet people who have been there as you'll find out but yeah it's just sort of it's there as a landscape uh sorry there as a backdrop rather but I didn't need to look into it too greatly because it wasn't going to be integral to a scene or anything like that. I just needed to know, you know, when it was, where it was, how it ended. We know how it ended. Yeah, it was more to do with the sort of the social, um, the the social and the politics, really, just in terms of who who was in government, what was the the attitude towards the the poor and the lower classes. What did people eat? That's a bit. I come back to food. I'm an ex-restaurant critic, so I uh, and and food blogger. So I I've always made sure that food has a prominent place in all of my writing. So yeah, I watched a I watched a couple of documentaries into on you know what the Victorians ate, what the Regency period ate. I I had to look into debtors' prisons a bit as well because that's a that's a point in here in terms of how they worked. I can't actually attest to them being to it being entirely accurate. I think my debtor's prison is probably a bit more comfortable than they actually were. I did far less research in doing these two books than I would now. If if I'd have my time again and I was writing these from scratch, then yeah, I would do a lot more research in terms of uh, the Virrington household and how that works as well. That changed over time because of how the the social hierarchy uh, happens. You know, oh, well, if if her sons all die, then must pass down to the next male heir. Well, who the hell would that be? Hmm. Although I can say, and and yeah, I, I didn't, for me, the story kind of works seamlessly. I didn't pick up on anything that I had to sort of do a double take and be like, is that accurate? Um, and I think it's it's going back to, and I've said it like <laughs> 20 times, it's going back to the world that you've created. It is, it's really full. Um, and I think when you can pull that off, you don't really notice if anything has sort of, you know, slipped under or, or not really been done to the full extent. So, I, I yeah, I think you've done a really good job. <laughs> well, thank you. That's uh, that's very kind of you, Sam. I, I mean, yeah, if uh, as long as I'm doing, as long uh, I would much rather people were enjoying the story for the story rather than picking out and just say, oh, well, that wasn't invented in nine, in 1815. But I'm also very careful to make sure that those things definitely were or weren't invented. If they weren't invented in 1815, well, then fair enough, shoot me. But uh, yeah. I where, where possible, that's that's another thing I sort of uh, did a check on myself with the, with the final, sort of the final editing, just sort of thinking, all oh, right, okay, it, so-and-so is reading this book, had it actually been published back then. Yeah, well, thank you so much for for coming on. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure having you, um, and it's been really great talking about your book. Oh yeah, no, absolutely. It was, you know, it's an honour to uh, to have uh, inspired something so uh, to, to, to such a discussion. Really, uh, <laughs> I'm not used to talking about them so much. Really, so um, yeah, it's, it's been fun. Mm-hmm.